Welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. This podcast is a project by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution to increase the avenues where we can connect. One of four hosts serve as interlocutor, engaging in conversations with members of the dispute resolution community about topics of interest in the field. This week, I'm sitting with Meryl Hirsch to discuss how to become a special master. Welcome, Meryl, to the ABA Resolutions podcast. We are happy to have you. We had Anne Goyer, who is a special master's as well as a mediator and arbitrator. And I know that you are here today to talk more about special masters and creating a more diverse pool of special masters. But before we go into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your newly appointed role as executive director at the Academy of Courts Appointed Masters. Sure. I have my own ADR and and law practice. Um, And I started out uh, at the Justice Department when I graduated from law school. And then I went to a firm which merged uh, with another firm 10 years later and into another firm 10 years after that. And I kind of left before it merged again um, to to start my own practice. And I also have for a number of years been the chair of the ABA Judicial Division Lawyers Conference Special Masters Committee, which is a ridiculously long name with no known acronym, but it's... (laughs) It's a committee. All right. We, maybe in the future we can have. Yeah, we can come up with a good one, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I live in Washington D.C. I, you know, actually my practice is Hershey D.R. And so the the committee was formed because the judicial division wanted to look into whether courts could make more effective use of special masters, and we did a number of things. Um, One is that we put together a working group of 10 divisions, sections, and forums across the ABA, including the DR section, to see if we could come up with consensus guidelines on the appointment and use of special masters in federal and state civil litigation. And so we had calls, met, drafted, revised, and whatever for 18 months, and came up with consensus guidelines that were then co-sponsored by all of these groups and approved by the House of Delegates. I'm not supposed to say unanimously because it was a voice vote, and who knows, there might have been somebody in the back corner. But I was there, I didn't hear anybody. But in any event, they were approved (laughs) on a voice vote by the House of Delegates in January 2019. And um, that was a big deal for us because as I'll get to, the standing on one foot version of these guidelines is that special masters are an underutilized tool and that courts should consider using them as a regular part of judicial administration and that they would work better if you did it that way rather than we'll get to, but how historically they had been used. Um, And to get the whole ABA to basically say, look, we ought to be looking at this option was a really big deal for us because it made it ABA policy. Um, Since then, the Special Masters Committee has been working on a whole bunch of different things. Um, One of them is to draft a model rule for states for using special masters. Another is to 
to draft model principles of ethics to apply to special masters, and that's never been done before. Another is to develop criteria for selecting special masters to a roster, because I'll explain this too, but we recommend the courts use rosters. Um, another is to draft an application you could use for that process, uh, also a survey instrument to evaluate the work of special masters so you can have figure out what's what's working, what's not working for individual special masters and improve their work, but also so that you can now have data that somebody can go back and, you know, and analyze and say something because nobody's ever been able to say anything about what's, you know, what works and what doesn't work for special masters. It's a, that's an ADR problem generally, you know, for mediation and arbitration. Everybody has an idea what's good, what's bad, but, but mm -hmm. there's very little hard data on, you know, evaluating that. And so that, will allow that. So we did all of this stuff and, and did a lot of outreach, wrote articles explaining the thinking behind the guidelines to programs of courts and try to set up actual things and also try to work programs where law schools are paired with courts so that students um, uh, as part of a class for credit or a work study or as an extracurricular work with, you know, evaluate the court's potential use of special masters so that they get access to the ABA, they get access to the courts, they get to interview judges, which is cool for law students and get access to this. And the court gets a deliverable because one of the problems is you want to improve what the court's doing, telling them, great, you can spend a lot of time doing this is not really much of a you know, incentive, if you can say, well, we've got a law student who can do the heavy lifting for you, so you don't have to occupy your time doing it, it makes it more attractive and useful for courts. So we do all of this stuff. And then, uh, meanwhile, the Academy of Court Appointed Masters is, uh, is what it sounds like an industry uh, group of special masters. And they kind of contacted me out of the blue and said, well, you want to be our executive director. Um, well, and that's nice. I, yeah, <laughs> um, and, um, so congratulations, I, by you. the way, on this new appointment. So I still have my day job. I mean, this is actually my day job, but I still have my ADR in law practice. But okay. what I beginning September, you know, the beginning of this month, September 1st, what I've been doing is working on their strategic direction. And what's really attractive for me in doing this, that what makes it exciting is that this, the work that we had done in the ABA was very much directed to uh, the demand for special masters, why courts ought to be using them, uh, and why <clears throat> practitioners ought to like the idea of using them. Um, but the ABA doesn't really have any control over the supply of special masters. The ABA can't maintain rosters and choose, you know, among its members and say, you know, pick these folks, not those folks, or, or that kind of thing. Um, and it isn't really a special masters industry group. It's a it's a lawyers group that may some of whom may be special masters. Um, so ACAM has a whole different history. ACAM was formed in two thousand and four. And it was formed as an organization of people who actually were special masters because they realized they were doing this job and, um, and um, there's no one to talk to. I mean, they can't go, you know, they have a problem. They have something that, that they've never heard of coming up. It's not, not exactly something that would come up in, in being an arbitrator or a mediator or a lawyer. And 
how do I solve this problem and work my way through it? And you can't go talk to the judge and say, well, I got this problem. And you can't just talk to the parties often. So who can give them you know, advice and a sense of community about the profession and move it forward and improve it and you know, make it better? So they formed this organization. And part of the structure of the organization was that it was for people who, who were special masters. To, to have the sense of community. So that's what it historically had been bef before now. Um, so what is a special master? The special master is a Swiss army, okay? It's basically a tool that courts, and for that matter, not even just courts, administrative agencies, adjudicative agencies, administrative level, it could be used as part of an arbitration. So you even, you think of it as court, but it isn't even limited to court. Mm -hmm. um, but let's use court as an example that a judge can appoint to serve a need that's justified by the circumstances. In the federal system and in almost all of the states, court, the judges have authority, at least under some circumstances, to appoint someone to do this. The problem is what the this is, is unbelievably mm -hmm. broad. Okay. It's usually thought of as being quasi-adjudicative. Um, and so the most common examples of special masters are kind of three of them, right? One is, is the original jurisdiction of the United States Supreme Court. When one state sues another, they can bring file the complaint in the U.S. Supreme Court. Those cases are pretty rare, but frequently the most common fact scenario is they're arguing about where water goes, whether who has the rights to water or the river is moved and they're arguing about the border of the states. And those are require factual determinations. Well, strangely enough, nine, nine justices didn't think it was a great idea to sit around and hold a trial. Um, so they historically, going back to the beginning of the Republic, appointed special masters to conduct that trial, do fact finding, and do a report and recommendation to the Supreme Court, with the Supreme Court making the decision. Um, that's kind of a, an offbeat area of the law. It exists, but it's, you know, has a historical background to it. Um, the second area that people think of is a judge who, who is pulling his or her hair out. Um, this is a judge sitting there, the lawyers are arguing, they're filing a gajillion discovery motions, they're yelling at each other, they're screaming, everybody says the other is a liar and ought to be disbarred, and the judge says, I'm tired of this, just like a parent, right, throws up their hands and says, <laughs> says I'm going to send you to a special master, that person is going to work with these problems, I don't have the time for this, I don't have the patience for this, you know, go, it's almost like sit in the corner. Right. And yeah. so you get a, the, the judge brings in a special master to help work out these problems, and, and, you know, with, you know, and make reports and recommendations on what should be done. Mm -hmm. um, the third example that people would think of is claims administration. Again, not all of which is judicial. The most famous is Ken Feinberg. You know, 9-11 fund, you set up a fund, fund of money, somebody needs to figure out who gets it. Mm -hmm. And Actually, the vast majority of his things are not court-related. The BP oil fund was not a court-related fund. GM set, set up a fund, fund you know, for its issues. And basically, it's figuring out who gets what from a, you know, from a larger fund. But it also comes up in court settings. Title VII cases where you have a class, class award or whatever, and you need to determine who gets what you know, from the mm -hmm. class award or mm -hmm. settlements that have class-wide settlements and now they're individual things or 
core Teamsters hearings. We have follow-on hearings in, in Title VII type cases. Um, those are the three most common, you know, it, to the extent anybody thinks about special masters at all, those are the ones that people would think of. However, it's not just limited to quasi-adjudication. Um, for one, and it's not just a limited to adjudication on these areas. Sure. It can also be facilitative, okay? These folks need help working this out. So I'm gonna appoint someone who will help them work it out so it doesn't get on my desk or so that it does get resolved. A very big deal is that the 2015 amendments to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure established the principle that it's not just the court's responsibility, but the lawyer's responsibility to, to secure the just, speedy, and in, inexpensive resolution of every action, the revision of rule one. Well, that's wonderful, except uh, what happens if they don't, right? And how do you make sure they do? Because it's not self-executed. And what you find is that while we have a, a an admonition you're supposed to be reasonable um admonishing lawyers to you know you should be reasonable is a little like saying you should defend your client zealously within the bounds of law just not too much because unless you have some way of making that real um they're getting a mixed message if a lawyer perceives that it would assist the client to be unreasonable you can argue that they have an ethical obligation to be unreasonable. And even if you don't go that far, you could certainly argue that it's not ethically wrong for them to do something that you know assists their client. Mm -hmm. So nobody told these lawyers who had been fighting and getting judges to pull their hairs out, you know, exactly <laughs> how they're supposed to now, you know, make friends but still do it. I mean, very good lawyers do know how to do this, but not every lawyer does. Um, and so what so the idea of this is this shouldn't be on the judge's desk or a magistrate judge's desk. They, this shouldn't be, they should work these things out. Well, what if they don't? If you, a, a thing a special master can do and part of what the guidelines talk about is rather than waiting till you're pulling your hair out, start at the beginning of the case and have someone who manages the case and assists the parties to perform what the rules contemplate. For example, receive discovery, look at it, you know, and then call up the parties and set up a you know joint call and say, you know, this this request number six, the one that asks for every document that relates to every other document that relates to every other document. Is is it just me? I, I know it's one of these, you know, six degrees of separation things, but aren't 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 you asking for every document in the world? Um, you can't want that. What are you driving at? Right? That question could save people tens or potentially even hundreds, depending on the case, thousands of dollars. Mm. You know, it, it is amazing what happens when you don't have lawyers wasting their time writing nasty letters to each other and nasty responses to the letters and replies and rebuttals and back and forth, followed by motion hearings, followed by refusing to provide discovery while the discovery issues are being debated with the court, followed by waiting for the court to decide these things and fighting over them. It's an incredible waste, a huge expense. So some of that role, even when it's quasi-adjudicative, could be in that way facilitated. You're trying to head off the motions before they're filed. But it could be pure, you know, it, it, to me, it's semantic whether you call a court-appointed mediator a special master or not. It's just mm -hmm. a, you know, 
court-appointed mediator is an adjunct, and I consider that to be in the category of special master, but they could also be mediating individual problems. But it doesn't even have to be that. It could be investigatory, all right? I, you know, uh, there were a bunch of lawsuits seeking habeas corpus because Pete, the prisoners said we're exposed to the virus. You can't keep us in, you know, in 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 prison. The you know we need to be released um, to to for our health. So one way of handling the case is to appoint a special master to go and investigate and report back to the court what the special master has observed. Mm. Um, it could be liaison. The parties are discussing something, settlement or something. The the details can't really be shared with the court, but you know, it could result in some outcomes, like it would really help us if you decided the summary judgment motion. Well, the long answers are really appreciated because I think it brings a lot of understanding to our listeners. And I wanted to kind of transition back to what you were talking about before about diversifying the field. And I wanted to understand and or help our listeners understand who plays these roles in, in this community of special masters. Um, sure. And thank you for saying that. I was worried I was giving speech. <laughs> so <laughs> no. um, the um, the answer to that question it depends on whether you're talking about who has done it historically up to now and who we hope will be doing it. Um, one of the concerns that we raised in the guidelines, because why the guy while the guidelines talked about how wonderful it would be to make use of these resources the guidelines didn't say well the way we've used it in the past is really terrific in fact what it said is that historically part of the problem with using these you know post hoc after you're pulling you know pulling your hair out and and ad hoc whenever the judge feels like it without any structure is that the main way someone historically has gotten appointed as special master is to have a friend who's a judge um that's absolutely the main way people have chosen and that has all kinds of problems i mean one is that the judge's friend may not be really good at this another is that the judge's friend uh <clears throat> if they aren't good at it um the parties are quickly driven up the wall because what are they going to do if the special master runs up a spectacular cost doesn't understand the issues and creates another layer of bureaucracy that they need to deal deal through to try to get things resolved are they going to go to the judge and say by the way your friend's an idiot you know i mean that's really not something parties feel real comfortable doing right. so so that's a second problem and the third problem is the problem that all of adr has which is Historically, if you're talking about people being appointed because they're friends of the judge, they're white males. I mean, it's, it's, it's not universal. There's certainly some, you know, many, you know, well-known, very talented women, uh, special masters, way fewer minorities. Um, but it, you know, anything that you grandfather in that way by saying it's going to be a friend of the judge, and of course, well, your likelihood of doing it, it's the chicken and egg problem that all of ADR has. Your likelihood, you know, the best way to do this is to have done it before. Um, and so you grandfather in one group um, by virtue of this history. The main reason I wanted to take this position at the Academy of Court Appointed Masters is to work on changing that. Um, and what we are doing is while we're trying to expand the use of the profession by encouraging courts to, to take advantage of this 
Swiss Army knife in much different ways and use special masters much more routinely. Um, we are also trying to expand the profession. So I've spent a lot of this month reaching out to different affinity bars and groups and organizations, uh, including wider and, and uh, you know, NAPAVA and the National Bar Association and many different organizations who so and say, look, this is the biggest problem in ADR, okay, that, that you can't do it unless you've done it before and the people who've done it before are white males and solving that problem is an incredibly difficult problem in, in ADR. It's true of mediators, it's true of arbitrators, but the problem you have in mediation is in some ways harder because it's the parties who pick the mediator. A whole idea of this process is self-determination, right? Mm -hmm. So what are you gonna to do to the parties? You're gonna to go to the parties and say, I had this absolutely terrific person to do this. Uh, they haven't done it before, but they'd be great, really. You, yeah. you know, that's, a, that's a very, very hard sell. And there's no way of forcing a party, You know, forcing parties, no, you absolutely have to use somebody who hasn't done this before. So getting people broken into the profession is a real you know, challenge. It's not intractable, there are ways around it, but it is a real challenge. We have kind of an advantage, which is we, it isn't the parties who 100% decide this. Um, judges are the ones who actually make the appointment and courts are the ones who set up the mechanisms for doing this. So you can work through those mechanisms to set up a diverse list. Um, you can have courts set up rosters. Well, what we wanna do at ACAM is open up the membership to people who haven't previously served as special masters and provide training and mentorship and standards of professional con conduct that people would adhere to, which from my standpoint, helps solve a no number of problems. First of all, you can bring in a way more diverse group of people. And because the profession is small, it, 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 you know, it's easy to, to change the numbers with, with, you know, you don't need, need thousands of people to change, to change these numbers. There aren't thousands of special masters to start with, you know. So relatively small numbers can make the profession far more diverse. And you can easily justify this back to courts by saying, look, okay, set up a roster. And when you set up a roster, don't just look at people who've been special masters before. Go and look at the rich collection of skills you have in the bar face it to serve all of these multiple functions um, you're going to need a diverse list anyway you're mm -hmm. not going to want all plaintiffs lawyers for example you're not going to want all defense lawyers you're not going to want only people who've handled small cases who, who aren't familiar with class actions when you have a class action or large cases and aren't familiar with how how to deal with cases where there's less at stake and it needs to be done done less expensively you would want a rich collection of people to serve these various functions with all these different skill sets because just as no judge is an expert in everything no special master can be an expert in everything so you're going after a broader list and you can do this by looking at you know a, a broader list of people from the bar um than you know than just what you know the people who've done it before now, the truth is senior lawyers are also less diverse than junior lawyers, but they're more diverse than ADR professionals. And at least you start on that and you work over time as you have to do with all diversity on the pipeline, you know, so that people receive the experience and training. And part of that is the mentorship. You know, 
we're hoping to set people up so that they can have experienced special masters to talk with and and shadow the special masters work so they can can become a part of it that is a way in mediation that people get into it because you know the person shadowing and actually has a lot of contact with the parties and they get used to dealing and you know, they have more contact with the the assistant who's who's being mentored than they have with with, with the mentor himself you know um and so and they get a resume plus they get training so we've we've talked in the long run of doing a certification which we won't do in the short run that's huge logistical issue but in the short run you develop training so at least people can have you know can say they've been through this training and professional standards so they can can give people comfort that they're not going to run up costs and and become this problem of a friend of the judge they're going to be efficient and recognize their obligation to be efficient as part of the process of judicial administration and so that you can then say if you hire someone who goes through this process at ACAMP you can get some level of comfort that this is going to take advantage of the good parts of special master and solve the bad parts historically of special master while diversifying the profession. And that to me is part of the most exciting, exciting aspect of it. The other part of it is I'm trying to work to make ACAM a partner with other organizations that do judicial administration because ADR and judicial administration are amazingly silent. If you ask much, most lawyers, what happens at the clerk's office? You know, literally, what do they spend their time doing? What's their greatest concerns? What's their top 10 list? Most lawyers wouldn't have that close to being right. For most lawyers, courts are a black box, box and the only light that peers out of the box is from the judge or occasionally from the judges, you know, law clerk or secretary or someone who said, you know, who has some contact or courtroom clerk and vague things. Um, they have very little understanding of what courts try to do. Most people who do ADR have somewhat stereotypical views of what courts do, do that I think is, most is maybe unfair. A lot of people who do ADR, um, you know, the very common line you hear mediators say all the time, you know, and and is oh well, it's always better to settle than it is to to go to a decision, right? And well, yeah, there are obvious advantages to settlement. Mediation is a wonderful means of dispute resolution. It is critically important, you know, no doubt. But always, I mean, do you really think the right to petition is meaningless? That mm -hmm. really, you know, we should never have a court make a decision that nobody is entitled to do this you're, you're you know i mean think about what that means for justice if you're really saying that nobody is entitled to get an up or down you know that they should negotiate everything and mm -hmm. think about the quality of negotiations you have when it's not a realistic option to get a court determination you know i mean that means the negotiation isn't really based in the merits it's entirely based in interests you know, some of whom may be legit, some of which may be legitimate interests of the parties, but others may be, well, I'm, you know, we're both exhausted, but I'm less exhausted than you are. So, you know, <laughs> I'll exact a better deal. I mean, you want fair settlements, the realistic possibility of the case will genuinely go to trial on a real schedule, you know, focuses the mind, strangely. It's a reason why you have court had steps, you know, I mean, they, they could have put it all on the first floor, but there's a reason for having steps there, you know, that's where, you, you know, and, and so 
the process of alternative dispute resolution works better if it works in tandem. And the perception that there is a, a uh, competition between you know, judicial adjudication and alternative dispute resolution to me is nonsense. You know, I mean that in fact, courts make you know or work best if they make effective use of ADR and ADR works best if the courts are working effectively. Um, and they need to respect that that courts, especially in the pandemic, have done absolutely staggering job. Okay, it's unbelievably impressive. Not that they solve every problem, not that they're perfect, but you imagine getting thrown this for a loop. I mean, yeah, a lot of businesses closed. Courts couldn't do that, right? I mean, they had to stay open and they had to deal with their own health, you know, and the health of their staff, create mechanisms that they had never used before, move over to, to you know, to uh, remote things. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's astonishing. And so, Special masters are part of that process. And what I see this is, is that the best way to make the most effective use of this tool is to become a partner, in part, you wouldn't get this from the fact I do these long speeches, but in part to listen, you know, to, yeah. to because in order to be effective, special masters need to understand from the people who have the problems what the problems are. And then work with them as one of the tools, not the only tool, but one of the available tools and be at the same table and break down some of the silos so that information from this field, or, you know, gets shared with other fields. So I've also tried to reach out to, you know, uh, you know, I had a great conversation with Liz Hill about ombuds, you know, and, and, you know, um, to reach out to other types, you know, people involved in other ADR organizations, because there's a lot of overlap in thinking and some of the same problems had to be solved in a different setting. And so the more we learn about what each other does, the more effective all of us can be. I, I agree with you. And actually that uh, I just did a podcast on Ombuds Day and we learned, our listeners learned about the traditional role of an ombudsman. And some of the things that you were saying, I felt were kind of married with some of the, the ideas that were talked about in that podcast. And it, it sounds like having a Swiss army knife in the courts is very important because as you mentioned before, the more we learn about these ADR communities, the more that we can learn from each other, the better use we have. I guess you didn't say it in like this, but I'll say it in our society because we're resolving and we're helping each other out in these matters that are very important. I wanted to ask you what kind of considerations, I think you talked a little bit about expectations of someone starting their career as a special master, but what type of considerations should someone consider before they apply to being a special master? Okay. Um, again, let me answer that two ways. Okay. One is sort of the starting out your career consideration, which is a real change in the world since I went to law school. You know, when I went to law school, there wasn't an alternative dispute resolution class. And Frank Sander, you know, who many consider sort of the father of, of a lot of ADR thought, was on the faculty and I never knew he did any of that stuff or had any idea about it because it he wasn't allowed to talk about it. That wasn't real law, you know. Oh, <laughs> no. So 
it's important for people to have a mindset about dispute resolution being a broader issue than just uh, how much you can scream at your opposing counsel, right? I just, you know, I just got an ad for uh, how to write killer interrogatories, a CLE program, you know, and mm -hmm. I thought maybe, you know, setting up your life to write killer interrogatories is not the best way to become a really good, thoughtful lawyer who helps your <laughs> clients. That this is possibly a skill that is, you know, it's it's like, you know, uh, how to troll, you know, I mean, it's like one of these skills that maybe is not what we ought to be focusing on, you know, and so teaching yourself that the things you you aren't necessarily other going to, you know, like civility and thoughtfulness and care about other people are really important skills to help resolve things. Get your mindset in that and set your career out to help to gain the skill and experience. If you're later on in your career, the question is, you know, how comfortable am I doing this, right? Uh, do I have, I think it's worthwhile to take training in mediation. I think it's worthwhile to participate in mediations. It's tremendously helpful to get experience in different settings. And one of the problems is, I mean, you know, I have a lousy elevator speech. And the reason is that I've spent my entire career resisting the, the, the main marketing focus of lawyers. Lawyers are way more successful in marketing um, by narrowing their focus. You know, law sharpens focus by narrowing it by saying, "I am an absolute specialist on on subsection A1C. Nobody knows more about that subsection than anybody else. You know, than anyone else." And the problem with that is, while it's far more effective marketing, and any marketing person will tell you, you know, you need a clear message. It has to. The elevator speech needs to be perfect. You need to get it out in five words. And the problem with that is judges are generalists. They're not your marketing audience. And there's a tension between what lawyers get taught for marketing and what lawyers might need to be a neutral. Mm -hmm. And that's true of all neutrals. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, you have to be curious about other things besides the limited thing you do the most of. You have to be flexible about how you look at things and more broadly appreciative uh, of all the sort of you know informal what are people's interests as opposed to legally what exactly is their their right or they can argue for or how this fits in mm -hmm. so be more receptive i mean it doesn't mean don't become a successful lawyer at your firm for example but it means that you need to recognize if you want to be a neutral you need to think more broadly in all kinds of neutral fields about how problems are solved. And so across your career, do that. At the point you're deciding to be a special master, it's, am I ready to do that? Am I ready to put aside, in this context, at least beating up on other people and more towards trying to problem solve, you know, in this context? And do I have enough experience with how people do beat up on each other, you know? I have to understand the drill that people are going through and why they're doing it. I, you know, obviously I'm kind of, I guess I'm deriding what people do, but the truth is there are natural reasons why people do it. This isn't that people are evil. It's right. that we have an adversary system that has a lot of advantages to it, but it does incentivize a certain type of behavior that isn't necessarily what you want. And understand these incentives exist people are petrified about losing cases so they over litigate them that's not surprising and it 
or they just don't understand the process. They're just completely afraid of what's going to happen. Right. They're afraid of, I mean, you know, there was that study that, that law is the only profession where pessimism among students is correlated to eventual success in every other field of optimism. (laughs) You know, lawyers aren't supposed to to wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night saying, God, did I ask too many interrogatories? (laughs) 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 I mean, you know, they're supposed to worry that they miss something and they and they drive themselves nuts doing that. Well, the truth is it's understandable because you, someone else's, uh, you know, well-being and, you know, I don't do criminal law, but it could be their life, you know, and certainly could be their freedom, um, you know, or their career could depend on, on you doing this. Obviously, you put take a lot of weight and that emotionally takes a lot out of lawyers. Um, you know, you have to sort of gain a kind of emotional intelligence that is important to all of, of alternative dispute resolution and be willing to do that. So if you reach the point where, gosh, I want to make the system better and not just I want to win this particular case, I think that's that's the point where really all ADR, but certainly special master may come in. Well, Meryl, it's been a pleasure to have you here on the ABA resolutions and to talk about special masters and the needs for them. And I just want to thank you again for being here and taking the time. Thank you so much, Caroline. And really, if if anyone has questions, feel free to contact me. uh, My email address is incredibly imaginative, but you have to spell my name correctly. It's Meryl, M-E-R-R-I-L, at merrillhirsch.com, M-E-R-R-I-L-H-I-R-S-H. You know, I'm happy to talk with people, update people on where things stand, and, you know, we'll send out more more news on things. Excellent, and I'm sure they'll be contacting you. Okay. (laughs) So, um, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Meryl Hirsch, for your time on resolutions. To learn how to become a special master and to learn more about Academy of Court Appointed Masters, please visit www.courtappointedmasters.org. Again, that's www.courtappointedmasters.org. Thank you for your time and thank you for listening.